This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, it's been nearly a year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Since then, the U.S. has been working with European allies to support Ukraine. We look ahead to what the next year could bring for transatlantic relations. Then, the COVID pandemic placed a massive strain on the country's health systems, including the CDC. Experts recommend sweeping changes to prepare for future threats. And several new cybersecurity regulations are rolling out for defense contractors this year. We discuss the changes and why they should start preparing now. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. On January 20th, defense leaders from around the world met at Ramstein Air Base to discuss aid to Ukraine. Leaders were split on sending tanks to Ukraine. Luke Coffey is a senior fellow for National Security and Defense at the Hudson Institute. Luke, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. So as of this taping, there are reports that Germany has agreed to let Poland send German tanks. What's the big deal about that? Well, this is a positive development. Uh, the big problem with uh, sending these Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine is that as the manufacturing country, Germany has the right to veto where, uh, where these tanks end up. So even though these tanks are bought and purchased and owned by countries like Poland and Spain and Finland and even Canada and even Turkey uses these tanks. Even though these countries have purchased these tanks from Germany, they're not allowed to export them to a third country without Germany's approval. And this is where we are today with the situation. So what, what's the root of Germany's reluctance? Are they afraid that Russia would retaliate against them? Well, Germany is concerned that it'll be viewed as escalatory against uh, the, the Russians, that the Russians might take steps to retaliate in some form or another. To me, this doesn't make much sense at all, uh, considering that Germany has already provided very effective uh, long-range artillery systems that have been used on the front lines and have probably killed hundreds, if not thousands, of Russian soldiers already. Why they are dithering over this decision about sending main battle tanks, uh, I, I really don't understand. Of course, uh, there, there were some reports that uh, the, the Germans will allow these countries. The Germans themselves won't send these tanks, but they will allow these countries to send their tanks to, to Ukraine. But uh, this remains to be seen if this is going to actually happen. So where does the U.S. stand? Why, why doesn't the U.S. just send their own tanks? Well, I think there could be a, a couple of reasons here. Um, firstly, it could be that there are a, a great number of Leopard 2 tanks across the European continent, so it might be quicker and easier and faster to send those to Ukraine first. Also, uh, the fewer different types of platforms that the Ukrainians are operating, the easier and better it is to streamline the logistics and the maintenance. So introducing yet uh, another variant of tank could be problematic. But to me, uh, I, I think we should be sending the Abrams tanks to Ukraine. I, I think that these concerns about logistics and the geographical ease of having tanks already in Europe are secondary to Ukraine's uh, national survival. And in the meantime, 
we should be training Ukrainian crews on how to use Abrams. Uh, even if there are no plans to give them the tanks, we should be training the crews. So when we finally find the political will to deliver these tanks, the Ukrainians will be ready to use them on the front lines. And why now? Why, why send tanks now? Why are they important to the Ukrainians? And, and what effect would they have on the battlefield? Well, the, Ukraine, uh, the, the use of uh, main battle tanks in, in, a, in a proper way with you know, ground support and air support and uh, the full combined arms package uh, can be a very effective tool for maneuver warfare. Uh, so this, uh, in simple terms, this means uh, helping the Ukrainians uh, take back territory from the Russians. And as the ground freezes into this winter, uh, and then as we see the mud dissipate late spring, early summer, these will be the two important windows for a Ukrainian counteroffensive against Russian forces. In terms of why now, uh, why now is basically a political decision. These tanks should have been delivered months ago to the Ukrainians, uh, but, but for political reasons, uh, they, they still haven't been delivered. And the Pentagon recently announced it's sending over another $2.5 billion worth of aid. What's included in that latest round of assistance and, and what effect is it expected to have? This has been the, the largest single aid package uh, to date to the Ukrainians. Uh, in addition to additional um, HIMARS, the, 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 the long range rocket systems uh, that the Ukrainians are using very effectively, in, in addition to more uh, rockets for the HIMARS and more artillery rounds, we're seeing the introduction of, uh, uh, of uh, striker uh, infantry fighting vehicles and, and Bradley um, uh, infantry fighting vehicles being uh, sent over to Ukraine. And the fact that the, the U.S. government trusts Ukraine uh, to operate uh, these uh, complex systems like the Bradley or the Stryker uh, me, leads me to think that the decision on Abrams can't be that far away. And since the start of the war, the U.S. has sent over uh, nearly $27 billion. You write that that assistance has been a good value for American taxpayers. How? It's a bargain uh, for the U.S. taxpayer when you think about it. Uh, 20, uh, we, we've sent $27 billion in military assistance since the war started. This is 3.5% or so of the, of the fiscal year 23 defense budget. It's, it equals one-tenth of 1% 1 of our national GDP. And it's a cost of $3.50 per week to each American taxpayer. And in return, we've allowed the Ukrainians to defend their country and also uh, de essentially destroy or degrade one of America's top adversaries on the battlefield. Uh, all for $3.50 a week per American taxpayer. So I would say that this is a great return on investment. Uh, a Ukrainian victory will have huge uh, geopolitical ramifications around the world in ways that we don't even understand or can see. Uh, but we have to start wanting Ukraine to win more than we just hope that Russia is going to lose. And we have to get into that victory mindset and give Ukraine the weapons that they need to, be, to win. All right, Luke. Well, nice to talk to you. Thanks so much for being on the program. My pleasure. Thank you. Up next, Americans lost confidence in the CDC after the pandemic began. We'll discuss what it'll take to regain that trust.
The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention came under fire during the pandemic and suffered a sharp decline in public trust. The government has received recommendations to revive the agency from a group led by Steve Morrison. He's senior vice president at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Steve, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pl real pleasure to be with you, Mimi. You write that the CDC has entered a moment of peril. Why? What does that mean? What I'm, what we mean by that, and I want to mention that, you know, this this effort started at the end of August. It was on a very rapid basis to analyze CDC, and we started with this very premise that CDC was had entered a period uh, of peril. And what we mean by that is that trust and confidence uh, from many different corners of American society has declined to varying degrees, but that is terribly important measure. That's the coin of the realm for public health institutions. It's part of a broader phenomenon of a, of a rising skepticism of science and public health institutions writ large. And it's not simply limited to the United States, but we've seen this sharply happen with CDC and we've seen stumbles in performance, repeated stumbles in performance. And we know that uh, the storm clouds are forming in terms of investigations and the like. And we are anticipating that in the coming year, in the course of 2023, things could get rougher. And so we began this effort, a very bipartisan, mixed effort with talent and expertise coming from multiple directions. We formed a working group, several different former CDC directors, a former FDA director, people drawn from public health, corporate sector, philanthropies, and people with lots of senior level experience, Republicans and Democrats, and we also did a deep dive in terms of consulting with governors and others privately. I did this jointly with Tom Inglesby from Johns Hopkins University as the co-chair, who is a wonderful partner in doing all of this. So our we, there's a sense of urgency. There's a sense that CDC is something which the American people need. They need a high-performing, reliable uh, source of excellence to protect American people. It's, it's something that we need to have as a national asset. It's a matter of national security. So those were the starting points for this effort. And Steve, the CDC director, Dr. Walensky, has called for an overhaul. Have any significant changes been made so far? Uh, Dr. Walensky um, announced in, around August 11th of last year that there would be a re internal reform process uh, called Moving Forward. Um, she admitted some very stark mistakes. Uh, obviously, the most notable and one that most people remember is the is the stumble over testing early in the pandemic in the first quarter of 2020. But she, she, she made this admission. I think she earned a considerable amount of goodwill in simply saying that, owning that problem and saying that the CDC leadership and CDC CDC's population was going to do a, a, a lot of soul searching and it, according to four or five lines of work, begin a process of internal reform. They brought in a couple of very senior people to assist them, Mary Wakefield, most notable, Jim McRae and others. That effort, we are awaiting the rollout of some of those provisions. Dr. Walensky's talked more, most recently about uh, the requirement for all CDC employees to be trained for emergency, emergency deployment and the like, and that it's be part of the generalized obligation. 
that's a that's an important step but there are many others that await action and i think that um this will be watched very carefully and steve uh, I, I and wonder, we're hopeful I, we're I, hopeful that she will be able to move forward but i want to make one point mimi that the power to reset cdc and we can go into detail on this the power to really being bring about uh, a reset of CDC that will improve its performance and raise trust and confidence does rest with CDC leadership owning the problem in a really serious way and not doing half measures. But most of the power lies outside of CDC, at the White House, at the Secretary of HHS, among senior congressional leaders, Republicans and Democrats in both chambers. And, and, and Steve, I was I was curious about your recommendation about the move a move to D.C. for the headquarters. Right. How, how did Atlanta end up being the headquarters for the CDC, and and why would a, a move to D.C. be advantageous for the agency? Well, first of all, Mimi, I want to say we did not recommend a relocation of the headquarters to Washington D.C. What we said was it was. It was founded in Atlanta in 1946 uh, in order principally at that time to serve the requirements of ridding the South and, and many of our military bases that were training there of malaria. And so it started with that history. It stayed there. It's obviously uh, grown into what it is today, which is doing many, many things. Our study was focused on the pandemic preparedness and response functions. There are many other functions, very important ones, that fall outside of that, that are more long-term and focused on the determinants of health, environmental workforce, uh, chronic diseases and the like. But what we did say was CDC in the halls of power, in the interagency process in Washington, it's a very weak player. In its communications with Congress, it's weak. Um, in its communications with the American public, it is weak. It needs a much stronger day-in, day-out presence within Washington, populated by people with gravitas, training, skill, seasoned in how to maneuver and bring along an argument based on national security, on protecting the American people, that looks to both the domestic and the global agenda of CDC. That is missing, and it and they pay a huge price for that. So we're not saying they should they should uproot the headquarters and move it. We're saying they need to move to have a much stronger and durable presence in, in Washington in order to be able to be effective at dealing within the halls of power and the executive branch in dealing with Congress and in communicating to the American people. All right, Steve. Well, thanks so much. That's all the time we've got. Thank you for being on the program. Thank you so much, Mimi. I really appreciate you paying attention to this. Straight ahead on Government Matters, new cybersecurity requirements for defense contractors are expected to roll out this year, but getting certified is costly and time-consuming. We'll be right back. This year, the federal government is expected to implement the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, or CMMC, for contractors. Eric Crucius is a partner at Holland and Knight LLP. Eric, welcome back to the program. Thank you. So we're, we're currently talking about CMMC 2.0. Give us a quick overview of the type of requirements. Sure. CMMC 2.0 is going to have three levels. The first level is going to be about 15 or so controls that contractors who don't hold very secret or important information have to comply with. It's going to be a self-certification. Level two 
if you have controlled unclassified information, 110 controls, and that will be verified by a third-party certifier, assessor. And then level three, they haven't quite defined it yet, but it's going to be something more than level two. That's going to be, you know, the big contractors who have the plans for the missiles and things like that. And is 2.0 the, the final, or is there going to be a 3.0? <laughs> is there going to be a 4.0? <laughs> we, eventually, we'll probably get to like 20.0, <laughs> to your point. But for now, 2.0 is, is where it is. And when I tell folks who are asking that very question, because that's a, a question a lot of folks are asking, is that the core of it, um, compliance with NIST Special Publication 800-171 and those 110 controls will remain consistent. Uh, throughout. So even if you're worried that there's going to be a CMMC 3.0 or 4.0 or 5.0, um, you still have to comply with those 110 controls. In fact, that's a requirement now. It's just a self-certification right now. So let's talk about the self-certification and what's involved in that and what, what the risks might be of self-certifying and then finding out later that eh, not so certified. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty big risk. The biggest risk is the False Claims Act because if you're a contractor, and you knowingly or recklessly say that you're compliant with something and then you're not, um, then you know, the Department of Justice or a whistleblower can bring a False Claims Act action. On top of that, Department of Justice released a memo recently that said they're going to look very closely at cybersecurity self-certifications. And if you're, if you're self-certifying and you're not compliant, they're going to look to terminate your contract and get their money back and things like that. So how long and how much money would it take to get the full certification? That's a really good question and it's kind of unknowable right now and it par partly depends on how far along contractors are in their cybersecurity journey, so to speak. So folks who are just starting out and really need to get up to speed, that could be easily a six-figure endeavor. Um, contractors that are most of the way there and are just going to be hiring assessor to come in and really verify what they've already done, that's a low five-figure. Uh, these are all estimates, of course, but a low five-figure endeavor. So somewhere in there, of course, it's going to hit small businesses the hardest who don't really have those resources to kind of put That's that what I wanted to ask you is what do the small businesses do that typically don't have a lot of money, don't have a lot of time? Yeah, it's, it's a tough problem. And I think the answer eventually will be there'll be these third parties that, that kind of populate the marketplace and they're already, some of them are already there that allow a back office solution for those small businesses that where they can host all those small business data that they have. And then when an assessor comes in, they mostly look at that third party, who they've probably already looked at a hundred times because other folks are using them, and they just look at a few controls for those small businesses. So that's probably the least expensive part of it. But last year's NDAA, 2022, um, Congress said to DOD, what's the impact on small businesses? You know, what's going to happen to them? Are shrinking in defense industrial base, will it shrink even more? And the small businesses are, are really concerned about that, and DOD is, is due to issue a report on that. You know, we've been talking about CMMC for a long time. We've been talking about it on this program. <laughs> When's it going to roll out? When's it going to actually become a requirement? Right. So the biggest news and the most current news is that DOD has announced that this rule, um, and it will be either a final interim rule or a proposed rule, is moving over to OMB for final consideration imminently. So any day we'll see it move over. And once it's at OMB, it could be released at any time. I expect it'll take a little bit of time for them to review it and to release it, but that's pretty big news that they're, that they're sending it over to OMB, which is the final step. From there, it could be a few months or so, but contractors who are not ready for CMMC should really start now, because it's a six, nine, 12 month process to get up to speed. So if this rule is being released sometime this year even, um, we're running out of time. So your recommendations start now, but I wonder what Beyond that, you know, what should they start doing uh, specifically to get ready? 
So they should really kind of do their own gap analysis. Look to see, you know, if, if I have controlled unclassified information, how many of these 110 controls are we compliant with? Look, look to see where they're at in their journey and then maybe hire a third party to come in and, and help them through that process. And it's not inexpensive to do that, of course, unfortunately. But, you know, DOD will say, this is the price of doing business with us. We're losing all this data to foreign nations um, and we need to do something about it. And typically, uh, right now, we're only talking about CMMC for defense contractors. Is there any discussion about this being expanded to civilian contractors? Yes, there's been rumors flying around that the civilian space will pick it up, the agencies will pick it up. I mean, we had the federal acquisition regulation roll out decades ago in the effort to smooth out differences between agencies. And uh, of course, then agencies develop their own regulations like the DFARS and other agencies too. And the hope is that right now, Cybersecurity compliance is very stovepipe. Different agencies are requiring different things. But civilian agencies, are, I think, are paying very close attention to what DOD is doing. And if DOD has a smooth rollout of this, I think they'll be quick to pick it up. And it would, it would seem like a good idea because, of course, DOD is for national security, but there's still critical infrastructure and other kinds of things that require a lot of really good cybersecurity. Exactly, yeah. There's, the agencies, civilian agencies have information that's just as critical to this country your point as DOD does. The only kind of roadblock is this definition of controlled unclassified information. I think it's causing a lot of confusion in the marketplace. So I think if DOD and, uh, and the civilian agencies really clarify that, and I think there's move to do that, I think things will be a lot easier. Okay, well, we'll keep watching it and we'll keep talking about it until, yeah. <laughs> it's, until it happens. Thank you, Eric, so much. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And listen to our Government Matters podcast, available on all major listening platforms. You can also find every podcast episode on our website at govmatters.tv slash podcast. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 1030 and Sunday mornings at 1030 on WJLA 24-7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Amy Gargis. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5 because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite 
connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.